Good morning, everybody. God, that's wow, you just lit up already. Wow. Good to see you all in here today. Thank you so much, Chrissy. And listen, years back, uh, I'm thinking late 70s, 80s, there was a movie called Chariots of Fire. Anybody remember it? Yeah, yeah. It was a, it was a movie about uh, Eric Little. And, and this man, at the time, a young man, uh, he had trained for m- probably years, forget about months, probably years, uh, for the purpose of w- running and winning in the 100 meter race in the Olympics. Well, and, and in particular, the Olympics were going to take place in 1924, to give you an idea when this was taking place. Well, sports writers all over the country, all over the world, predicted that Eric Little would win the gold medal in the 100 meter race in the 1924 Olympics. Now, on the way traveling to the Olympic Games, Eric finds out that they've scheduled the 100-meter race on a Sunday. And this poses a significant problem for Eric because he believed that if he ran that race on a Sunday that he would not honor God because he believed that to be the Lord's Day and the Sabbath. That was his conviction. Now, he chose not to run the race that day. Mind-boggling to some people. Well, certainly to many people back then, his fans, those who lauded him, applauded him, they kind of turned on him. They called him a fool. The writers all laughed at him, huh? Because he wouldn't run. And it seemed as that's where it was going to be, which was okay with Eric. Well, a short time later, maybe a day or two later, Eric finds out that one of his Olympic teammates, who was going to run in a 400-meter race, had to pull out, and there was no alternate runner. So Eric decides to offer himself to run in a race, a race that he had never trained for, that he never ran in his life, and it's 400 meters versus 100, do the math, four times longer than he's ever run in a race, in a competitive race. Well, Eric goes out there and he lights it up. He runs the race in 47.8 seconds, an incredible time, and he wins the gold medal, huh? It's a great story, isn't it? So, little honored God, and God honored little. God gave him his gold medal, just not in a way that he ever could imagine. Huh? His way, we're probably not talking about him today. Maybe they talk about him, but not here, right? This story is known to people all over the world because the uniqueness of it and how it gives us his example of what this man did. You know, later on, when he finished up with the Olympics, he went on to China to be a missionary, to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with people who did not know him, right? There in China in 1945, Eric Little dies in a war camp as a missionary. And just as ever, right to the end, non-compromising in his convictions than he'd ever been before, huh? My son Justin, who's read a book on Little, reminded me of that Little, Eric Little, could have come home alive in a prisoner exchange, you know, his country had worked out for a prisoner exchange to bring him home and send others. There was a woman there who was in prison who was pregnant at the time, and he sent her and he stayed. Incredible, right? What convictions, huh? It, it, just, it just grabs me. It, it compels me. It inspires me that someone would hold so true. kind of just gives you a sense that, you know, that in all the chaos and uncertainty that there, there is, there, you know, God is still doing great things in people in this world, right? Now, today we begin a new teaching series called Swimming Upstream, as you know. And we're going to study, you know, the book. We're going to look into the book of Daniel, which is in the Old Testament. The you know, Bible is, you know, really made up of two books, the Old Testament, you know, from, the, from God creating the world right up to right before the time Jesus was born. And the New Testament is the birth of Jesus and the beginning of the church, God's community of people as we know it today. Now, Daniel, like Eric, was a man, a young man of strong convictions. And at the age of 14, just a terrible, tragic thing happened in Daniel's life. He was uprooted from his family and brought from, from Judah, Jerusalem, the promised land, as some of you might know it, where the Jews lived. He was taken from that place, his homeland, and brought into captivity in a place, a country called Babylon. Now, Babylon was a society that did not believe in God. Well, they believed in many gods, what we would call, and Daniel would call, false gods. But they didn't believe in our God, what we know is the one true God. 
It was a godless society. Now, we've he you've heard me mention the word convictions, and I just want to toss up a quick definition of that word conviction. A fixed or firm belief, the state of being convinced, something you're certain of. There were many times in Babylon that Daniel was tempted to compromise on his convictions, but Daniel stuck to them, even if there was a high price to pay. And as we go through this series, we're going to see that that came upon him from time to time. So the question is, how did Daniel do it? He grew up in Babylon. He lived his life in Babylon, 14, 20s, 30s. How did he do this? How did he not give in to the pressure that would come upon a person serving God, trusting God, believing in God, living it out large for God in a society that was ungodly, wanted nothing to do with God, maybe mocked and scorned those who did believe in God? So in other words, the question for us today is, how do we live a godly life? in an ungodly world. Because this, speaking of this country, this country fundamentally is no longer a Christian country. And I know that's hard for us to get that through our head for those who have been in the game for a long time. But you can tell, for the most part, most of Christendom really hasn't absorbed that fact. You can tell by the way they speak, by the way they conduct themselves, their methods and their strategies of ministry, their expectations that the United States of America is no longer fundamentally a Christian country. Hmm? Now, so we are gonna turn around and we are gonna jump into the scripture this morning. We're gonna go into chapter one of Daniel. We're gonna, we're gonna take it slow. Might pick it up a bit here or there, but I want you to hang in there. There are some things you're gonna hear, some details that at first you might not get it, but we're gonna do the best we can to kind of flush it out and, and help you to understand that and catch up. But in the end, I assure you, in the end, there is something that is relative to you and is applicable to your life. Those who know God, believe in God, trust in Jesus, and those who don't. So let's jump into Daniel chapter 1, verse 1. During the third year of King Jehoiakim, reign in Judah, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon came to Jerusalem and besieged it. The Lord gave him victory over King Jehoiakim of Judah, and permitted him to take some of the sacred objects from the temple of God. So Nebuchadnezzar took them back to the land of Babylon and placed them in the treasure house of his God. So when God brought the Israelites out of Egypt, you know the story, Moses, the Ten Commandments, the splitting of the Red Sea, he brought them into this place, took a long time, 40 years, called the Promised Land. It was a land that he promised his chosen people, the Israelites. God told them this, if you obey them, he made what we call a covenant, a sacred, solemn promise between him and his people. He does it with their, there for us as well to this day. He says, listen, he tells the Israelites, if you obey me, that you'll be richly blessed in this land. But if you disobey me, if you don't follow my instructions, you're going to be put out of this land. This is my promise to you. Well, from time to time, and leading up to this story, sadly, the Israelites would choose to not follow God's instructions, His loving, caring, protective instructions, provide, instructions that provide life, not death. They would choose to disobey God, to go about it their own way. huh? And even though God would send prophet after prophet, men over and over to show them that they were sinning and had turned from God, they would not listen. They would keep going. So our story picks up right around... 600 B.C., 600 years before Jesus is born, Nebuchadnezzar now is king. The Israelites have disobeyed God once again, and God has said, okay, you know, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to have at it. Your enemies are going to come in now and take you over, and they're going to remove you from this land that I promised you because you've not obeyed me. And so Nebuchadnezzar's king, let's pick it up in uh, verse 3, chapter 1. Then the king, Nebuchadnezzar, ordered Ashpenaz, his chief of staff, to bring to the palace some of the young men of Judah's royal family, meaning the best of the best, the young men of Israel, and other noble families who had been brought to Babylon as captives. Select only the strong, healthy, and good-looking young men, he said. Make sure they are well-versed in every branch of learning. They are gifted with knowledge and good judgment and are suited to serve in the royal palace. Train these young men in the language and literature of Babylon. The king assigned them a daily ration of food and wine from his own kitchens. 
They were to be trained for three years, and then they would enter the royal service. Okay, so not to confuse you, you're hearing these terms like Judah, Israel. So the promised land was really made up of a north and a south. After a few kings, they basically could not get along. They kind of divided. North was Israel, south was Judah, Jerusalem. That's where uh, Daniel is coming from, that south, Judah. Israel, the north, had years past already disobeyed God and turned from him, and a group called the Syrians had come in and done a number on them and taken them away. Judah had stayed amazingly, astonishingly, if you know the history of the world, how they, because they obeyed God, how this ravaging, devastating, large, powerful army of Syria took over all the then known world, but did not manage to take over Judah, is really logically unthinkable, but because they obeyed God, he held to his promise. That's why. But then, even upon even seeing what happened to their northern brothers and sisters, Assyria, due to their disobedience to God, Judah now follows years later in the footsteps. Okay, so we just read about Nebuchadnezzar and what he's trying to do now with bringing these young, the best of the best, the cream of the crop, to take them out of the population of Judah and bring them into his palace was a common thing that Nebuchadnezzar would do when he conquered a nation. He would send out a, a scout, he would bring the best. As I'm preaching you, Siri is recording everything I'm preaching, and she's, stop it, stop it. <laughs> I don't know how that happened. All right. So pretty much he sends out his scout, Ashranaz, to go to work and to get this done. And we read in verse 6. Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah were four young men chosen. And I told you before, they're about 14 years of age. And they're all from the tribe of Judah. The chief of staff renamed them with these Babylon names. Daniel was called Belteshar. Hananiah was called Shadrach, Mishael was called Meshach, Azariah was called Abednego. Some of you recognize the names. That's Daniel chapter 1, verse 6 through 7. Now, the name Daniel meant God is my judge, but Ashpenaz renamed him Belteshazzar. I'm doing the best I can here with the name. <laughs> After Bel, the chief god, I did it better when I was practicing, by the way. So Daniel means God is my judge. Ashpenaz renames Daniel Belteshazzar after Bel, the chief god of the Babylonian pantheon. Hananiah meant the Lord is gracious, but Ashpenaz renames him Shadrach after Aku, the moon god. Mishael meant there is no god like the god of Israel, but Ashpenaz renames him Meshach, which means there is no God like Aku. And Azariah meant the Lord will help. But Ashpenaz renamed him Abednego, which means servant of Nido, who was the second most powerful God in the Babylonian pantheon. So Ashpenaz renames them and explains the rules of their new life in Babylon, right? You're going you're gonna to now enter a three-year-long training period, and you're going to learn our language and our literature and our customs and in and, and and, and doing this, here's the good news now. Every day, you're going to get a good portion of meat and some good wine to drink. How cool is that, right? Problem is, these rules created a dilemma for Daniel and his friends, and his Jewish friends. Let me tell you why. Well, because certain kinds of meats were forbidden for them to eat as Jews, pork being one of them. Not only the meat, but the way it was presented, you know, the way it was prepared would be forbidden to them as Jews in their worship of God then. In the Old Testament, the Old Testament we would call law, in particular ceremonial law, civil law. Now, although wine wasn't forbidden in Jewish law, partaking of wine in a manner like this, in a, in a kind of giving ritual to a pagan god, would be considered an act of worship even in a pagan ritual without directly worshiping God, it would be seen as an indirect worship of God, and that would be deplorable and repulsive. And so here we have Daniel and his friends, really young men, teenagers, living in a pagan society and faced with the decision, what do we do now? Do we go with the flow or do we take a stand for God? Do we live out our faith now? Well, here, let's read verse 8. What will Daniel and his friends do? But Daniel was determined, say with me, say determined, 
not to defile himself by eating the food and wine given to them by the king. He asked the chief of staff for permission not to eat these unacceptable foods. Got guts too, huh? Now, God had given the chief of staff both respect and affection for Daniel. But he responded, the chief of staff, I am afraid of my lord, the king, who has ordered that you eat this food and wine. If you become pale and thin compared to the other youth your age, I am afraid the king will have me beheaded. Wow. Now, some of you might say, oh, that's a stretch right there, because talking about the chief of Babylon, they don't believe in God. You got this powerful, strong, ruthless king, and he put this guy in charge, and, and the guy, and now it says here that this guy, the chief of staff, had affections for him, respected Daniel, right? <laughs> yeah, no, check this out. You go back into World War II, I believe, Adolf Hitler and the Nazis. Well, there's a story, it's a true story, about a man named Dietrich Bonhoeffer. I'm a big Bonhoeffer fan. His book, The Cost of Discipleship, it's an incredible book. He's, he talks about grace, and he'll have no part of cheap grace, and that, all, that he wants his life to be poured out for God. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, that he could have turned around and left Germany. His family was well off, and the rest of his family and friends, they left Germany, came to America, and he says, you know what, I'll, I'll not do it. I'll not go to America while the Jewish people here suffer, who weren't his friends, who didn't know God. He said, no, I'll stay here, and I'll be with them, and I'll share the gospel, and that when we come out of this, they will know Jesus, huh? and they will know that we stood with them. Incredible, huh? Convictions, holding to his convictions, holding to what God spoke in his heart, holding, listening to God and not pushing it out, standing on what he believed in standing on what he was convinced in his heart was true, and he would not let the circumstances override that. He would not be a person of circumstances being tossed all over the place. He would hold to his convictions and know his God like none other, huh? Dietrich Bonhoeffer. You know why I'm talking so much about Dietrich Bonhoeffer? Because I was introduced to his writings. You know why I was introduced to his writings? Because his Nazi guards would sneak them out of the concentration camp. Yeah. Matter of fact, Time Magazine about... I don't know, 10, 15 years ago, published letters from cell block, I'm gonna make a number up, 41. And it was his letters to his fiancee while, nobody knew he was engaged. While he was in the concentration camp in prison, he was writing letters to his fiancee. The, his waters, the Nazi guards would sneak them out. That's the respect and the affection that they had for this man, huh? God is still doing great works. Thousands of years ago, 60 years ago, 70 years ago, and even today, God is favoring those who will stand by their convictions, and even those you think are against you, you think mean to harm them, he will instill respect and affection in them for you as you hold to your convictions. Do you believe me? Now, so here's Ashpenaz getting back to the story, telling Daniel, I want to help, but you know, it's not only that I could lose my job, I could lose my head, right? So, chap, verse, uh, verse 11, chapter 1, Daniel spoke with the attendant who had been appointed by the chief of staff to look after Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Please test us for 10 days on a diet of vegetables and water, Daniel said. And at the end of 10 days, see how we look compared to the other young men who are eating the king's food, the meat, and the wine. Then make your decision in light of what you see. Daniel chapter 1, and actually verses 11 through 13. In other words, Daniel sees that Ashpenaz is reluctant. So he, he proposes a plan. Hey, give us 10 days, feed us these vegetables, see what happens so no one will lose their job, nobody will lose their life. Well, you know what? In verse 14, the attendant agreed to Daniel's suggestion and tested them for 10 days. At the end of the 10 days, Daniel and his three friends looked healthier and better nourished than the young men who had been eating the food assigned by the king. So after that, the attendant fed them only vegetables instead of the food and wine provided for others. Now some of you are thinking, what would Dave do since he dislikes fruits and vegetables so much? I would eat the meat and I would drink the wine, right? <laughs> well actually, so I, I, kinda, I checked into this and my friend who I was working with you know, did a good job too. The word here, vegetables, that we're using in the original Hebrew actually means any, that which is grown of seed, right? 
So it would not only have been vegetables, and, but fruits and also things, grains. So I would have made it, all right? I would have had some, a lot of good bread and a lot of great pasta, huh? <laughs> so Adam and Eve may have eaten the forbidden fruit, huh? But not Daniel and not Daniel's friends. They flat out refused to compromise on their convictions, even in a seemingly small area. And as a result, what? God rewarded them. He blessed them. And we see that in verse 17. It says, God gave these four young men an unusual aptitude for understanding every aspect of literature and wisdom. And God gave Daniel special ability to interpret the meaning of visions and dreams. Some cool stuff that we'll get into in the coming weeks. When the training period ordered by the king was completed, the chief of staff brought all the young men to King Nebuchadnezzar. The king talked with them, and no one impressed him as much as Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So they entered the royal service. Whenever the king consulted them in any matter requiring wisdom and balanced judgment, he found them ten times more capable than any of the magicians and enchanters in his entire kingdom. So Daniel and his friends set themselves apart from the Lord, and as a result, the Lord set them apart from everybody else, yes? God made them ten times smarter than anyone else. He gifted them, and he opened up the doors for them, even in the midst of such difficult circumstances. But they would only know this because they held, they stood, they did not compromise to their convictions. They stepped out in faith, and they refused to compromise. And you know what? That's just the kind of people God wants to use in mighty ways on earth. That is when we see God use people in incredible, mighty ways, in ways that people are talking about them, huh? They're not piecing together their own life so people can view it and so on and so on. No, they just live out their life and people are like, wow, what a great story. How inspiring, how motivating, right? Because God used them in a mighty way. Every time God uses somebody in a mighty way, you will see leading up to that, they stood by their convictions. What the, the things they believed in, the things they were convinced were true inside, the things they knew were not worth compromising. So God rewarded their faith with this special blessing, and he promoted them, Daniel in particular, to a higher place of leadership in this culture. All right, Daniel chapter 1, done. All right? So, now Daniel wrote this book. The reason why I'm able to share with you today is because Daniel wrote the book to encourage Jewish people who've been exiled in Babylon. Some were even born or being raised in Babylon. And he wanted to, them to be encouraged and to remember God while they were living out in this ungodly culture, this place called Babylon. Now the message, yes, when he wrote it, was to his Jewish people then. But it speaks to us. The story encouraged us to remain, to remain faithful to God while living in an ungodly, fundamentally non-Christian American culture. The story ought to encourage us today not to compromise our faith in Christ. The story ought to turn around and remind us that God will provide, He will protect, He will bless those who remain faithful to Him and His instructions. It ought to inspire us to hold true to Christ, to pick up our cross and follow him, to live our lives for him regardless, whatever it takes. Now, here's the decision, here's the big lesson from Daniel chapter 1 regarding how we can live a godly life in an ungodly world, an ungodly culture. Daniel's example teaches us it begins with the decision to do so. Yeah, right now, as I'm speaking to you, May 28th, 1049 a.m., you are going to decide, I am not going to compromise my convictions. I am going to hold to what I believe and what I know of God. I am going to obey God, regardless of the circumstances. In other words, the very first step in living a godly life in an ungodly world is to decide that you're going to live a godly life. We read, in Daniel, we read in Daniel chapter 1, verse 8, but Daniel was determined not to defile himself. Some of you, the verse might tell you, his heart was purposed. That, that means resolved. He, was, he firmly decided. He, he, he said, I'm not going to compromise. 
We see that Daniel committed to this in specific ways. There was nothing vague about it. And you and I, we want to consider these commitments that Daniel made and took and lived out if we are going to live a godly life in an ungodly culture and therefore see God bless us and use us and, and, and do a mighty work in our lives. So the first thing Daniel said within himself was, I will not take sin lightly. So Daniel experienced firsthand the devastating consequence of sin. As a result of Israel's refusal to repent of their disobedience to God, of not following instructions, of compromising on a small scale and blatantly turning from God and disobeying Him, God moved His hand in the form of the Babylonians to bring consequences to them. And Daniel saw firsthand the results of sin, that the wages of sin is death. He saw families broken, dreams shattered. He saw pain, suffering, and he saw death. It was vivid. And he said, that is the result of sin. There's no whitewashing. There's no gray area. This is what sin brings. And it does. This is what it does. Having experienced this, Daniel was resolved not to take sin lightly. You know, Daniel saw what would come from not trusting in God and following his instructions. Sin. There's a uh, place called Bush Gardens. There's one in Virginia Beach. There's one in Tampa, Florida, Tampa Bay, Florida. Uh, you know, several years back, me, Christy, and the kids, we had the, uh, the privilege and the, and the ton of fun to go down to the one in Virginia Beach, right? Now, there's this ride. I think it was called the Vector Water Ride, right? So, you know, my kids want to go on it. I, I don't. I, I, don't like, I, don't, I don't like these rides, you know? The high ones, it's just, it's just, I don't know. I think as you get older, you change, and it's like, hey, I shouldn't be up here. I shouldn't be doing this. My body shouldn't be doing this. My equilibrium shouldn't be doing this. It's just not good. So I go on this vector water ride with my kids, right? And, you know, you just, you're going up and up and up, and you're trying not to look down, and then you look down, and you're like, oh. So the thing about this ride is that um, it's high. Everything at Bush Gardens is high. And... Um, you get, you go up, you get on a platform. I should have did one of those YouTube videos here. You get on a platform and you actually step in a tube and it's a straight down vertical drop for about, I don't know, maybe 50 feet, 40, 50 feet. But the thing is when you get in this tube, right, it's a little slightly, you know, inclined. And, and when you get in, you look down and these, these two feet and they're crossed. And, you know, the left has a right foot and the right has a left foot. And they tell you, over the speaker, cross your legs, cross your arms, and the attendant putting you in, puts you in there, and he won't close the door until you cross your legs and cross your arms. And I think this is quite stupid to cross my legs. I really do. And I'm thinking, I know where they're doing this. They probably want me to, like, corkscrew. And I'm like, I don't want to corkscrew. And I don't want to cross my legs. I feel like, you know, I, I feel like a sissy to cross my legs. <laughs> so I'm just going to, so as soon as he closed the door, I uncross my legs, and I plant them firm, and I, you know, I'm ready to go. Boom, right? And boom, the floor just opens up, drops, and you fly through. Well, oh my Lord, oh my God, I got to tell you, <laughs> at first it was all good. First maybe two, three, four seconds, and then it just all of a sudden it started to come apart on me, you know? You know, you say you can't tumble sauce in those tubes, I did, you know? And uh, there was a good reason why you should cross your legs for all sorts of reasons, okay? <laughs> Because that baby water comes flying up, you start twisting and turning, you hit more of them, and it was just painful and exhausting. You see people come out of there, they get shot out into like a little pool with maybe a few feet of water, they get up, they're waving their arms. I crawled out of that. I crawled through the water, I crawled out of the pool, I crawled on the concrete. This is true, over to the bench, my kids are laughing, I'm spitting up water, I can't breathe, I'm in pain. There's no cup for that, man. I'm in pain, right? All right, so. Ah, I did. Well, listen. It was, it was humiliating. It was. It took me like about 15, 20 minutes just to, you know, get myself together. Well, that's how it can be with this thing we call sin. When we take it too lightly, when we don't trust God and and don't hold to our convictions, and we don't follow God's instructions, you know what, at first it looks good. Everything's going well. We're kind of satisfying ourselves, and then bam, right? It just kind of, the consequences come on us. 
you know, and, and, it, and by the time we realize it's honest, it's just we don't know what to do. Things are just coming apart in our lives. Huh? Like, how do we get here? And what happened in this relationship? And, and, how could, and it just happened so quickly, man. And there's pain. Even you lose your breath. I mean, you lose your sight. You just, what happened? That's the results of sin. Sin can cause you to lose your job, a job that really you thought God called you to, a God that was providing a good one. Sin could cause you to lose your marriage, your reputation, even your freedom. That's what sin does. When sin finds you, and it does, man, it hurts you. So you got to guard against it. you got to see it as something real, as I don't want to live my life this way. I'm going to hold to my convictions, whatever it takes. Sin aims to wreak havoc in your life. And the cost of sin is always greater than whatever short-lived pleasure we get from it. It's just so true. So we must commit today not to take it lightly. That's the commitment Daniel made right out of the gate. I'm not going to take sin lightly. I have seen what it has done in the lives of people I love. I've seen what it's done in my country. You simply cannot. There's not one person in here. So even if you don't believe in God, you do believe in God. Here's God's instructions. I could lay them out. And if we took them one by one, and you would look to people in your lives who have violated that or not obeyed that, and you would say, yes, pain came from that. Even if you don't believe in God, here's God's instructions. Do you know people in your life that you're attached to, and even yourself, that have not followed these instructions, these commands, and did that result in pain and suffering in your life? And the answer would be yes. God is good. God is true. God is faithful, yes? All right, let's move on to the next commitment. Wow, 1057, how did that happen? <laughs> All right, we'll fly. All right, the next commitment Daniel made that we need to make as well today to hold to our convictions in an ungodly world. He said, I will not, not let culture brainwash me. I will not let culture brainwash me. You see, King Nebuchadnezzar was determined to brainwash Daniel and his friends. And here was his strategy. He took them out of Israel and he surrounded them by people who didn't believe in God and wanted nothing with God. So now their friends and people around them would be people who didn't believe in God, would scoff at God, right? Okay, second, he's going to remove anything and anything that would remind them of their God, even to the point of changing their names, which in the Jewish culture would be like kind of an identity thing, right? He wanted them to forget who they were, that they were children of God. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who I mentioned earlier, he writes this poem, Who Am I?, he wrote it, they say, just a few days before the war ended. And right as the war ended, although there were those warders who respected him, valued him, had affection for him, there were also those leaders who just despised him and knew the effect that and the change that he was having and would have. And as the war ended, they killed him. Hmm? They martyred him. Well, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he wrote this poem and I want to read it to you. The poem is called, Who Am I? And I think I've said this before, years ago. I was in a really difficult, clouded place in my relationship with God early on in uh, my life and in my ministry and my marriage. And I picked up this book, The Cost of Discipleship, and I read the introduction. And this poem was in the You know the book is good when the introduction blows you away, right? <laughs> you know? Changes your whole view, your perspective of life at that time. It's called, Who Am I? He writes, who am I? They often tell me that I would step from my cell's confinement calmly, cheerfully, and firmly like a squire from his country house. Who am I? They often tell me. I would talk to my warden freely and friendly and clearly as though they, it were mine to command. Who am I? They also tell me. I would bear the days of misfortune equably, smilingly, proudly, like one accustomed to win. Am I then really all that which other men tell of? Or am I only that, or am I only what I know of myself? Restless and longing and sick, like a bird in a cage struggling for breath, as though hands were compressing my throat, yearning for colors, for flowers, for the voices of birds, 
thirsting for words of kindness, for neighborliness, trembling with anger at depotism and petty humiliation, tossing an expectation of great events, powerfully trembling for friends at an infinite distance, weary and empty at praying, at thinking, at making, faint and ready to say farewell to it all. Who am I? This or the other? Am I one person today and tomorrow another? Am I both at once a hypocrite before others and before myself, a contemptibly woe-begone weakling? Or is it something within me, still like a beaten army, fleeing in disorder from victory already achieved? Who am I? They mock me, these lonely questions of mine. Whoever I am, thou knowest. God, I am thine. Wow. God, whatever's going on in me, I don't know who I am, but I know this. I am yours. I belong to you. Huh? I am a child of God, right? Do you see how human he was? Do you see how he suffered? Some, many people call Dietrich Bonhoeffer the Apostle Paul of the 20th century. Huh? And do you see what was going on in him in the midst of all those circumstances? How he is so human like you and I, and he struggles like you and I, but in the end, what carried the day was he knows this. I know one thing, not what Satan's telling me, not, my, not how I'm speaking to myself, not what men think more than anything else, or women think more than anything else. I know this, I belong to God, huh? And that's what's going to carry my day, and I'm not going to compromise, and I'm not going to give in, and I'm not going to give up. I belong to God, I'm a child of God. You see, Nebuchadnezzar tried to indoctrinate them. He tried to give them the Babylonian standards and morals and values. He tried to give them the worldview to get them to acquiesce to culture, connect to culture. Don't think culture is bad, but we cannot acquiesce to the culture, right? In the forms of entertainment, in, in, in your principles, in your standards, in your worldview. Do not acquiesce to the culture, huh? What you do with your time, what you do with your money, what you do with your dreams, do not. What you do with your ambitions, do not lessen God and increase the culture. It will fail you. I think with Stephen, I mean, you know, it's, oh, and I didn't say this last week, I could say it today. You want to be ambitious. Listen, Christians are ambitious people. They're crazy ambitious. They've changed the world. First hospital, first colleges. But do it in a way that glorifies God. Do not compromise. And do it in a way that you know when all is said and done that you're not building your house on quickstand. You're not taking your dreams, your life, your blood, your sweat, your tears, and all of it and, go and putting it in on, with no foundation. I was at Stephen Covey. I'm a big Covey fan. He says, I got no problem with people climbing the ladder of success. He said, the problem I have Sadly, is that when people get to the top of the ladder, they realize they've leaned it up against the wrong building, yeah? Do not compromise your convictions, which are attached to your belief to God's commands and instructions. So when all is said and done, you will have peace, a closeness with God. You will have clarity. You will be comforted. You will be glad of where the Lord has brought you by His provisions, His power, huh? and how He's favored you. All right, so going on. Listen, he wanted these young men to forget about all they knew with God. He wanted them to forget that they were God's children, that they belonged to him. Nebuchadnezzar was determined to indoctrinate them in the way of Babylonian thinking and being, but not Daniel and his friends. They would not do it. They were purposed in their hearts not to conform to the Babylonian culture, not to give in to the Babylonian way. I mean, they stuck together, huh? They, I'm, I'm, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take a liberty here. I don't think it's reckless. I imagine they stuck together, right? I imagine they came together. I imagine they supported each other. I imagine they got to know each other better, right? Last night, I went to an event uh, to uh, support drug and alcohol recovery. It was a really cool event. I think it was the name of the place was the Crossover House. It definitely was Crossover. It might be something. Crossover Sober. Okay, fantastic. Ministry going on in Lemonster, right? And uh, I heard a quote. And the quote is this, I can't, we can. Say with me, I can't, we can. Right. Satan loves getting people detached from their community. 
from a Christian community. That's the church. The church is a community of people coming together. He wants you on your own, doing it your, your own way. Some of you, and listen, this is not a condescending, judgmental remark. I watch it and you, got, you do it your own way. Oh, much sympathy on my part. Sometimes empathy. If it's due to drugs and pain and suffering, that's empathy. I've gone through that. I've lost people to it. If it's due to other matters of divorce, I've not, but I have sympathy for that, huh? I, so I, I get that, but you're doing it your way, huh? And often your way is isolated, apart from the Christian community, apart from God's people. And that is not going to bring you the fruit that you want. You can't win that way. And when you do win, it's not a good win. I can't, we can. We want people connected in this church. We don't do a lot. People were asking, oh, well, tell us all that you do. I said, well, you know, because somebody from another agency wanted to meet with us. They've been trying to meet with me for eight months. I should say trying to meet with us. Finally, I was able to meet with them because we're considering taking on another agency that will help now as we expect to grow. And she was like, okay, well, t- well you know, you do, I hear you do so much. Tell us all you do. I said, well, we do Sunday morning. We do small groups, and we help out in the community. That's what we do. That's it. <laughs> right there. That's what we do. Right? Everything. That's it. That's chair, city, church. I'll try and talk about the whole chair, city, church thing at the end. I don't want to lose track right now. We do life groups because they, we know we believed in the beginning it was a vision. It was kind of a, 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 a call it a theory. It was we believed that here's a, a command of God and here's a strategy and a way to go about it to see it happen. Now, after six years, we know life groups work. We know they help people get out of their plan and into God's plan. We know they help people go from isolated to incorporated, huh? to involved in the body of Christ. Some happens right away, some over time, but that's it. You want to be part of a life group. You want to be part of the church, which is a community of people, not a building. You don't want to run this race on your own. There's nothing biblical or scriptural. There's just no sense of that. Man, even the world, even this ungodly coach we live in, they would say that's true. And they're trying to do all they can. I'm studying psychology. I go to seminary for it. It's huge. They say, now they're saying over and over again that people with emotional problems just one of the top things, always in the top three, and often it's number one, get them in a community of other people. So they have now figured out what works for people, which God knew it's in your scriptures, it's in your commands, it's in your instructions, because God created you. God created us. Does that make sense? So join today, today. Be determined to join a life group today. Be determined to increase your involvement in the community that you call home, that you call church. All right, let's move on. What time is it? 11.08, uh-oh. Okay. All right, worship team, why don't you come on up? I feel you staring at my back. It makes me move faster. Okay, look. I th- so the last thing that Daniel did is a commitment to him not compromising his convictions was that he said to himself, I will not forfeit God's blessings for compromise. Daniel understood that a sinful compromise would bring him to a place of forfeiting God's blessing. He knew the stories of how God had blessed his ancestors. He had saw God bless people, and he, got, he figured it out. When people trusted in God and obeyed God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength, not a half in a bag, but a wholehearted, non-compromising, trusting in God with all that I am, as they submitted themselves in right hand to God, he lifted them up. He raised them up. He got them. He also saw the consequences of sin. Right? And he says, you know what? I will not forfeit God's blessings for compromise. Listen, God's blessing on his life, but I'm going to read it out here. Although Daniel was tempted by sin, just as you and I are every day, he was not going to sacrifice God's blessings on his life for the temporary pleasures of sin. And that's what it comes down to. And we see this all the time. Yes, look, why do people sin? Because it usually feels good. It just does. It brings immediate pleasure. It just does. I say this. People get upset with me. Oh, that's bad. It's not going to make... Oh, it's going to make them feel good. That's why they do it. That's why we did it. That's why sometimes we fall and we do it. God have mercy. We fall forward and we repent and we turn and we talk to God and we get right before Him. 
but it's a temporary pleasure. It's fleeting, and it usually leaves us in a poor standing within ourselves emotionally and, and, and just in our lives. So, listen. God has standards. I'm going to close this out. God has standards. He has standards for dating. He wants you to be dating somebody who loves God, somebody who's passionate about God. Huh? I thank God for my wife that when I met her, you know, my view of love was so warped. My view of relationships I, that's, you know, was so really, it was like my view of love was, you know, buying a home, getting a golden retriever, and, and maybe not screwing around with other people, you know? That, no, I'm, I'm not even joking. That was my view of love, you know, and, you know, and, and being a good guy. That's what I was gonna. That's what I was gonna bring her. That's the. And you know what? By the way, I think that's where mo- a lot of people are. They, you know, you know, we all watch movies, we listen to songs, we know the right things to say, but at the end of the day, I really think that's the sum of so many people in relationships. Naturally, we breathe, we bleed. Do we not? All of us the same way. It is natural for us to come into relationships looking to see what we can get for ourselves. It's just who we are. Who comes into a relationship saying, you know what? I want to make your life the best life it could be. Yeah, yeah, that, that's why I'm coming into this relationship. I don't want to have sex with you. I don't want to jump on you. I don't want to turn around and have you do this or that for me. I don't want to, no, no, no. I just, man, I can't wait to say I do and marry you or just shack up with you or move in with you, whatever we got to do, because you know what? All night long when I put my head on that pillow, I'm thinking about how I can make your life better. What can I sacrifice in my life to make your life better? I I don't think so. But yet that's what it's going to take for that relationship to be whole, to be healthy, to be vibrant, to be intimate, yes? And everybody who's married or together for a long time said, amen, right? Okay, so I'm way off course here. Where am I? So God has standards. Be in a relationship with somebody who's a believer when it becomes a a serious relationship. Just when you know it's going in that way. Hold off in being intimate, meaning, oh, I, I should say, you know, I, I, get, I don't want to go down this road about sexual intercourse and intimacy and sex and all this stuff. So for the sake of brevity, don't have sex before you're married. Just because of what I said before, it's going to give you the clarity. Don't compromise. Don't compromise. Speak to, come on, sit there before God for just 10 seconds and say, Lord, what would you have me do in this relationship with my body, with my emotions, with my dreams? What would you have me do, Lord? Man, I want you to jump on him and give your body to him now, right? <laughs> come on, I, I know I'm being vivid now, but come on, what you, we're talking people's life here. We're talking about pain. We're talking about loss here. 10 seconds, just sit before God. And, I, and I'm, if I've offended anybody with the, with the, um, Vivid illustrations, it is not my intention. It is not right now. I just feel this moment I want to speak to somebody. I don't know who, but I know I want to speak to somebody. Because every single week my phone blows up. And I cry. I ain't let, I'm crying. There are times I sit there and I weep. I showed people last night, was it, 30-something messages of people in pain. All tied to right here. In this situation of relationships, men and women, women and men, huh? And if they would sit before God, if you can sit before God and say, God, how will I honor you in this relationship? How can I trust in you and not compromise in my convictions, no matter what the fear is, no matter what the weight is, no matter what goes on, speak to me now, God. I am here, and I'm going to trust you, and I'm going to obey you, yes? It will go well with you. It will go well with you. Okay, I guess them staring at me has not made any difference in me, okay? All right, why don't you stand? I'm going to close this out. Daniel lived an un... And, and that goes for work. If you're a professional, man, come on. It, it's it's got to be tempting. You're working in a company. You put so much of your time, your efforts. You might have gone to school for college, university. You're trained. You want to make more money, not less. And all of a sudden, you find yourself in this position where maybe being in that position was a culmination of years. I, don't, I mean like eight, nine, ten years of effort and work. And now, whoa, now you're in that place of compromise. If you don't compromise, seemingly you're going to undermine and lose all that you worked for. That's what you think. That's your perspective. But if you could just compromise a little bit, 
It'll be okay. And then after that, you'll get godly. It's just not how it works. You know what you did? You just turned around and took that lever like on a train track, and you flipped it, and you went in a different direction. And here was God's providence. Here was Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. Acknowledge him in all your ways, and he will make your path straight. Yeah? And you said, man, I'm, I'm taking a detour. And you know what the detour does? It goes in circles. It goes in circles. It goes in circles. One step forward, two steps back. Let's not live this way. Let's go the way of the straight path. So Daniel, he resolved not to take sin lightly. He resolved not to be brainwashed by his culture. Very careful about what he was taking and what he was hearing. He resolved not to forfeit the blessings of God on his life for compromise and temporary pleasure. Listen, if you do not know God, if you, do, if you do not know Christ as your Lord and Savior, huh, you might be thinking this has got nothing to do with me. But I, I, think, I think it does. Whether you believe in Jesus or not, a compromise is still, might still cost you your marriage. You know? A compromise might still cost you your reputation. A compromise might still cost you your job. A compromise might still send you to jail. A compromise might still see you displaced. A compromise might cause you shame and embarrassment whether you believe in God or not. But the question is this. Where do you find, is that how you want to live? I would think not. I would, as I speak, I know people that are in hospitals, that are in jail, that are, just this week I could add up five or six or seven people that fit this list. They might be in here, they might not be. So the question is this, where do you find the power and the ability to overcome this stuff, to deal with it? Where do you find the power to live without compromise to what you believe and what you know is right? And it starts with a relationship with God, the God who gave you. It starts with, I can't but we can. It starts with, he did so I don't have to, I can just trust in him. It starts with following Jesus Christ. And it starts with accepting Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. And when you do that, God, God's Spirit comes alive in you. You need to know that even doing that, you've not done it on your own. That God has brought you here. That God in His sovereignty and His most excellent and His glory has awakened you. Why you and not somebody else? Why are you here right now and not somebody else who's sleeping somewhere, doing something, or getting up who knows where, or just somewhere out in Home Depot? <laughs> just pops in my mind all the time now. Home Depot, Home Depot. Listen, because God puts his Holy Spirit in you, and that spirit draws you closer to him. It awakens you to your need of him. It tells you you were made for something better. It speaks into your mind hope, and it speaks into your mind greater standards and greater principles. Do not be afraid. Huh? Run to the battle. Run to the battle, my friends. God is with you. So if that's you today, I want everybody bow our heads. I want you to say this prayer. Lord, I love you. I need you. God, today, I give you my heart. I give you my mind. I surrender. I give my all to you. Whatever it takes, I will not quit. I will not compromise. I want to be in eternity with you. I take a hold of the hope you've given me in Jesus Christ. Forgive me. Know that I need you. Know that I love you. In Jesus' name, amen.